0: Welcome to the Safe and Effective Podcast, a show that dives deep into the world of medical human factors and user experience. I'm your host, Heidi Merzad. Are you passionate about making a difference in the medical field? Curious about the science behind designing usable, safe, and effective medical devices? Look no further. Every episode, we bring you exclusive interviews with experts from industry academia, and government as they share their insights and experiences in the rapidly evolving world of medical human factors. From case studies to regulatory updates, we've got you covered. Stay ahead of the curve and learn valuable lessons that make a real impact on patient quality of life and user experience. Whether you're an industry expert or a novice looking to expand your knowledge, safe and effective, the Medical Human Factors podcast is for you. Join us as we explore the world of human factors and its impact on the medical device industry. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned and remember, be safe and effective.
1: Are you tired of boring lectures and textbooks on human factors and UX? Well, grab your headphones and get ready for a wild ride with the Human Factors Minute podcast. Each minute is like a mini-crash course packed with valuable insights and information on various organizations, conferences, usability methods, theories, models, certifications, tools, and much more. We'll take you on a journey through the fascinating world of human factors, from the ancient history to the latest trends and developments. Listen in as we explore the field and discover new ways to enhance the user experience. From the think-aloud protocol to the critical incident technique focus groups iterative design will make sure that you're the smartest person in the room tune in on the 10th the 20th and the last day of every month for a new and interesting tidbit related to human factors don't miss out on the human factors minute podcast your ultimate source for all things human factors
2: Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, greetings,
1: and welcome to episode 294. We're recording this episode live on September 21st, 2023. Do you remember? The 21st night of september i sure do this is human factors cast i'm your host nick rome i'm joined today by mr barry kirby hello there it's been a minute hasn't it it has been exactly two weeks since we sat here in these podcasting chairs sitting about talking about human factors and stuff we got a great show for you tonight we'll be diving into the world of video games exploring delightful and sometimes frustrating world of user experience and human factors elements within video games. Later on, we're going to be trying something a little different, something new with a debate on prioritizing intuitive and minimalist UX and UI design, human factors elements, or embracing detailed and comprehensive design in video games as a companion piece to tonight's article. But first, we have some programming notes, and there's an exciting one for you all tonight. So HFES is just a month away we will be there. I'll be there. Barry will not be there in person, but he will be there in spirit and remotely. Heidi and I will be in person. So stop by Say Hi. We'll also have members from our lab hanging out with us. Join us as we broadcast live once again from HFES, the 67th International Annual Human Factors and Ergonomics Society meeting straight from Washington, D.C. That's right. Get front row access to all the stuff that we're doing, including exclusive interviews, insightful panels perhaps and so much more to be revealed over time our team will be there we'll be located at the concourse foyer right near registration so if you're attending the event swing by share your conference experiences with us if you can't make it to dc no problem we got you covered stay connected with us we'll get you all the updates you can tune in with us at 8 a.m eastern that's 8 a.m eastern we're typically on pacific time but 8 a.m eastern thursday October 26th. We're going to do it on that Thursday. Give us a little bit of uh, lead time with some of the stuff that we'll be covering. So that way we'll have more sampling from the conference for you this year, which I think will be really exciting. The live stream will be accessible on our channels here, anywhere you find the Human Factors cast stuff, as well as the official HFES social media channels. For the, leaks, for the weeks leading up to HFES, we are going to shift the show model to a bi-weekly release So this is the next big announcement. And this is just to give us a little bit more time to help prepare for the upcoming coverage of the event. It's like our Comic-Con. We do spend a lot of time and effort putting in resources and time and prep work into this event, this coverage, since it is where all us Human Factors geeks get together once a year. So just to preview the schedule, October 5th, we'll have a show. October 19th, we'll have a show. And then we'll do the live coverage on the 26th at HFES so be there be square any updates from you barry
3: 1202 no not really nothing much because we've been taking a bit of a summer hiatus and really not having enough time to breathe never mind interview people so we will have a an autumn program coming up uh, details to be announced soon so what you're saying here
1: is that this bi-weekly cadence is going to be great for giving you two hours
3: back on a thursday yes and the rest of it so yes that'll be great good. let's I, get into the
1: news That's right, this is the part of the show
3: all about Human Factors news. Barry, what is our story this week? So this week we are talking about delightful and frustrating UX in video games. So we talked about the impact of Human Factors engineering in the gaming industry. Did you know that over 40% of the world's population are gamers? That's a massive user base that needs well-designed user experiences when they play their games. The author of this article is a UX designer, and they admit to spending countless hours playing games and, through this, noticing the common patterns that lead to both delightful and or frustrating experiences when they game. The author discusses things like menu screen design, information display, and heads-up display, or a HUDs, the methods of which the information is visually relayed to players as part of the game's user interface. One example of a frustrating experience is where the game bombards you with overwhelming amounts of information, particularly through its menu design. So we're going to talk through tonight 12 main examples that they bring out. There's going to be six frustrating ones and six delightful ones. So Nick, you enjoy a good game. You're um, um, a self-professed gamer. What are your thoughts on the article so far? So this is interesting. And I thought this article would open
1: up a wider discussion for us. For me, it's very frustrating as a gamer And to be in this field sometimes, because I know that things can be done better. And I'm aware working in software development, what some of those limitations are, and where sort of the people behind the scenes would have not cut corners on some of these experiences that we'll talk about here. So there are a lot of other factors in game development that prevent a product from being perfect. That being said, I don't think perfect should ever be the enemy of good. And I think this. Game development is interesting because the product itself is iterative where the design of the product itself is iterative but then also the entries within a series or across developers or publishers are iterative as well and you learn lessons from one game and apply them to another and games just get better over time. And so to point out some of these frustrating UI things that the article comes up with yeah they're frustrating now but we'll learn lessons from them and in the future hopefully those problems will be solved and we can nitpick on those all we like but this is these are just some notes I compared gaming as a whole to like complex systems earlier I'll get more into that analogy later but the whole thing to me is very fascinating so Barry you yourself didn't necessarily classify yourself as a gamer, but I'm curious on, on your thoughts of, of this whole thing.
3: Yeah, as you said, I, in some respects, I'm going to be a bit limited because obviously we're going to be talking about some specific examples, and I've just not played them. I don't, I'm don't. i not that gaming person, really. I never really have been. I've, I've wanted to get into gaming. I buy some of the platforms and stuff like that, but they. I know I've got a 360 and a PS4. basically sat on the shelf gathering, gathering dust and, and cobwebs. But I do spend a lot of my time about when I'm doing UI design and system development. I use an awful lot of gamification and gamification techniques, and have done lots of research around gamification. So the mechanics of gaming I'm quite familiar with, and so I'm quite looking forward to talking through some of them. But also, I've done a lot of work around the the using either you could either call it serious gaming or the use of simulation for training, and I've done a lot of work around that, and also. Uh, observed how we've seen the development of some games and how let's say some organizations have used the development of gaming in order to re- reduce their training burden and increase their recruitment for example when we talk about military examples later but fundamentally if we talk about the entire gaming thing i'm just not that person with one exception and that exception i, I do a bit of minecraft uh, I will I'll dip into that and 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 play that. I do have a realm and stuff like that. And and I guess that's because it's you're basically creating your own game as you go. You're creating your own game mechanics, what what is good for you and things like that. So that's interesting. There's another part of this which I think is really cool as well, is around the generational aspect of gaming and how the generations are changing and evolving. You know, if you go back not actually too many generations ago, nobody did gaming because the just the facility didn't exist. Yet now we've got a significant, say 40 percent of people are gamers, but then, what is a what truly what is a gamer? Is it somebody who is got a platform, they sit and dedicate maybe an hour or so of their time a day to playing a game and enjoying a game in its entirety, or is somebody who's playing a, a, a simple app on their mobile phone? Are they a, a gamer or are they just are they something different? I think we we're, we're being all inclusive, we're bringing everybody in, but it's it's interesting seeing different perspectives on what that means. But I echo what you said is that in terms of UI design, I don't really see any difference between developing the UI of a game to any other interface I design, be it for a fast jet or anything like that, because... The way I see it, the the basics are the same. You need to be able to onboard people. So somebody who's never used something like this before, you've got to be able to bring them in a way that doesn't overload them but allows them to explore. You've got to be able to make sure they can do the basic elements of what they need to do. But if they they want to do more complex things, then them sort of things are available, shortcuts, all that sort of really good stuff. I guess that the big difference in gaming is you've got to allow people to explore the environment that it's in. You've got to be able to give them the information to work with, but also be able to provide a level of challenge because you don't just sit there and just play the game just for the sake of it. You want to have a level of challenge and therefore you get the enjoyment of beating either the levels or the game or whatever and, and that sort of thing. I think fundamentally the UI piece is, is I don't think it's really that much different. It's the perhaps the outcome that we expect out of it and it's you, you're trying to keep people immersed in in what they're doing for as long as possible. And therefore, good and bad UI is going to affect that. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Well, yeah. <laughs> good. Well, yeah. I, sometimes it doesn't. I guess to dig into this into more detail, what we've done is list each of the different, so the, the six frustrating ones and the six delightful ones. And I think almost just take them one at a time because they're actually, all of them are really good Indicators, and it would be interesting again from the perspective you've played some of these games. I've not, or we've heard of them, we've seen some bits of stuff. So it will be interesting to, if you, if one of us have engaged with it, to understand maybe a bit more about what it is. But would that be a sensible approach for you? Do you think? I here's what I think we should do.
1: We should go through the list. So that way everyone is aware of what is out there. Some of these, I would almost argue, is subjective. There are some that are... Th- this is obviously the author's opinion. And I think we, what we do is we just list the the frustrating experiences that they, they mention. We'll list the delightful ones. And then we can pick apart some of these. What makes it frustrating or what makes it delightful at a high level without necessarily thinking about the example that they give given that not everyone will have played that thing if we need to we can dive into it a little bit to give it some strength but i think that's what we do so let's go over the frustrating experiences here first maybe i'll do this one barry i'll have you read the delightful ones after but they list six frustrating experiences here the first one is on death stranding they mention an overwhelming display of information The second one being Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. There's too many options, making it hard to navigate through the menu. Number three is Gran Turismo. There's inconsistent menu interactions. Number four, Resident Evil 4, the 2023 remake. They forcefully pause gameplay when picking up an item. Number five is Elden Ring lack of contrast in menu screens, and number six, Cyberpunk 2077, incoherent menu screens. So Barry, why don't you go over some of those delightful user experiences?
3: Yeah, so the delightful user experiences that the authors bought out is number one, Red Redemption 2, they have a minimal, easy-to-use menu. Number two, Returnal, new information is stored in a database with a logical information architecture. Number three, Stray. It has a beautiful minimal UI to complement the rest of the style of the game. Number four, Dead Space, the 2023 remake. Has a themed UI without sacrificing the UX. Number five, Horizon Forbidden West, customization and accessibility settings. And finally, number six, Resident Evil 4, the 2023, 2023 remake, again, inventory organization. So to look at them, I guess, them frustrating ones, the thing that sort of really hits me with all through them, with the exception of one, I think it is, they're all about the menu. They're all about how you interact with their menu controls one way or another. In fact, no, there's two separate ones, isn't there? Separate, yeah. Out of the six, four of them, we're talking about either inconsistent, incoherent menus or the actual design of them. So you mentioned the Elden Ring, I'm not a contrast. And then also and Legend of Zelda having too many options making it hard to navigate through the menu. So it seems to me that if you have a menu system within a game, because any sort of menu interaction is going to take your level of immersion out of the game because you're having to do something that isn't part of the actual environment. And you want to make menu interaction as sleek and as slick as possible. And so it seems to be that this is why it comes up. I can imagine that whenever you develop any sort of menu system, if you don't get it right, it can jar with whatever else is you're going to do. So presumably that's what they're finding in these games as well.
1: Yeah, you're right. And I think this is an interesting take on it because a lot of the frustrating experiences do come down to some of these potentially best practices that we know how to handle. And in some of them, they're an artifact of the game systems themselves, be it world maps or different items or mechanics that you can use within the game. And so the fact that or information overload even and so there's a lot of things there that we can draw conclusions from based on other things and this is where i'm getting at the comparison between video games to other complex systems like aviation or medical devices or even just medical settings right so thinking about all this and i'm going to go through a list here of comparing these two three things just to drive home a point of why we're talking about them. The real difference here for me is the consequence of error. In these other domains, you're looking at the consequence of error being life-saving events or life-critical events, where obviously if something goes wrong in an aircraft or in a medical setting, it's not good news. But if something goes wrong in a video game, the consequence is death. But what does that really mean for you? You get to try again there are some games that punish death a little bit more harshly than others but i think this is an interesting take if only because that to me is the main difference between these two realms now if you think about this frustration piece all of it aviation medical video games all need to be this user-centered design it's all about the players with video games. It's all about the pilots with aviation or the maintainers or the doctors or the nurse practitioners or whoever else in these hospital settings. And so if you think about all these things, it's ultimately designed or it needs to be designed for the person at the end. I think both examples work here. In terms of the sort of cognitive load piece, this is where it gets really interesting to me. because in Aircraft or medical systems, you have high cognitive load on users sometimes, especially in high stress situations. And the design of a lot of things in these spaces are meant to reduce that cognitive load, where in video games, this is an interesting um, flip side, where you have this frustration actually being designed in the sense where you need to design frustrating things for players to overcome to feel good about overcoming those things. And sometimes these can be like challenging players cognitively in terms of puzzles or attention, problem solving, or even skill-based things where you're platforming on a tight platform or you are engaging in combat that requires high reflexes. Again, like all this is super interesting But again, you bring up the frustration being primarily with menu systems and and the uh, overload of information within these menu systems. And so what does that say about video games at a high level? From this author's perspective, I think it says a lot to say that video games generally are fun and that the most frustrating parts are the parts that are not fluid with that primary game experience where you're the, the combat loop or the platforming loop or whatever. Thing you're engaged in because you have to navigate to a menu, mm-hmm. and so I've seen some examples of this where the where the menu doesn't necessarily take you out of things. Where I think there is an example on one of the delightful user experiences about menus, and I have to look at the list one more time here to refresh my memory. But I
3: think it was, and if you find it, let me know. Um, they the first one, which was a minimal, easy to use menu. Yeah, the, so well, the rest of the style of the game.
1: Yeah, there's two interesting things here for me. So one is going to be the dead space UI. And that one's an interesting one because it's an actual in-game UI. I think there's like a in in-game element where you're actually looking at a menu on your person. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like you're getting ripped out of that environment. So it doesn't ruin the immersion. The other interesting thing to me is that a singular game can do something right and wrong at the same time and that's here evidenced by Resident Evil 4 where it doesn't do a great job especially with at least in the author's opinion here pausing gameplay when you pick up an item but they praise it for their inventory organization the ability to organize that inventory and so it's possible that it excels in some places and doesn't do so great in others i just think it's interesting that you're right a lot of this stuff is when that primary thing that you are doing within a game is interrupted by needing to do something else. And how do you make that more fluid? How do you make that more part of the game world? And I'll just say from a VR perspective, one of the most incredible experiences that I had was playing the Batman VR game. And the reason being is because your menu and your items are literally on your utility belt. If you need to change an item, you just put one back on your utility belt, you grab the other one, and you have a batarang instead of a grappling hook. And it's just amazing because it's right there on your person. I think what? VR really excels at those types of things where it's harder to do those in traditional um, 3D spaces or 2D games where you have to navigate to something else. I don't know, I've talked a lot. I want to make sure you have an
3: opportunity to comment on some of those things. It, it, I think it's really interesting that we need to look at the UI. So you, the UI goes one of two directions, which I think you've quite nicely encapsulated. One is that you have the game that you're playing, which is the environment that you're working in, and the that menu or any sort of controls that you have that are not part of that environment need to be designed in such a way that they are there you can either slip through them quite easily so you use them the use of them reason is, is nice and intuitive and it's minimal so they highlight the that the something like for user experience is saying any any menu you've got has got to be minimal you only need to do what you need to do and nothing more than that because what you're fighting constantly we'd we'd do a lot of this with when we're using simulation for training. You're trying to, you're constantly got a a motivation versus immersion thing around it. So, the more motivated you are to do something and the better the, the graphics, the better the interface, the more immersed you get into what you're doing. And you're constantly trying to fight them to stay in, to have a high level of immersion. So, the more you're bringing them out of that environment to do nif-naf and trivia things, then the more frustrated you're going to be because you're not getting that level of immersion that that ui you talk about around having it so the in i think you, you said it was in dead space where the your menu is actually part of your character and it's done within a way that is part of the gameplay that's going to help with that's going to make sure that you stay more immersed in what you're doing rather than having to almost come out to that high level but you'd almost i do find it quite surprising that the amount of money that is spent on gaming and the amount of people involved in developing gaming the game design is a serious legitimate career in terms of a ux ui de- development design it's not just a it's not just a hobby thing it's a multi-million pound business multi-billion pound business and yet we can still get seemingly these type of things wrong or potentially incorrect and i do find i i guess i shouldn't be that stunned because we get it wrong elsewhere as well so it is done badly elsewhere as well it just feels if anybody should be getting ux stuff right the game industry should be getting it right and almost setting the examples and the trends to the rest of rest of industry do you think that that's that, is that a legit legitimate criticism do you think
1: yes and no i think there's some interesting things going on with the gaming industry that that prevent that from happening so the first thing being there's just the culture of secrecy around video games is a big one and so you can't necessarily test some of these things with a wider audience that might be your target audience it's like friends and family that need to sign ndas so that way these things are not released ahead of time because it's like i said the culture of secrecy in in that industry is insane and that's why leaks are such a big deal it's why you don't hear about things for a very long time until a trailer is ready you might hear rumblings or something but nothing confirmed until you see a trailer and it's very different from other Entertainment media, like movies, where you hear about a movie, and then sometimes it gets canned even before it makes its way in development. And the expectation is very different for both industries. It's fascinating from that perspective. But I think that culture of secrecy prevents a wider user testing base. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you'll have these big betas for a popular game, and they'll do an extended beta where they're mostly done with the thing, and then they're making smaller tweaks. But some of the like biggest pieces within the game are already set in stone, and it's more difficult to change those and what types of things are going to... There's all this speed, accuracy trade-off with development that not everything that gets... Like, if developers, designers, UX practitioners, human factors folks had their way, it'd be a perfect system every time. But because there are realistic timelines that you need to make in order to make a a game shippable or a product shippable. And if it's not a live service game, meaning it's not an extended period of time, that game is out and you can't iterate on it, there needs to be some level of sacrifice. And are you going to fix a menu system or are you going to fix a game breaking bug that causes your system to crash and erase all your save data. And I think they would argue that takes a little bit more priority. It's basically, instead of saying, do, do you want to make the plane easy to operate? Let's make sure the plane can fly first, is the
3: analogy there. But it's an interesting, that one again, isn't it? Because the to take it into the analogy of, of using the plane or any safe critical system is the outcome is almost really well-defined. You want plane to fly from, or the pilot to be able to fly the plane from point A to point B, doing certainly in the military context, doing something along the way, and you can almost easily measure, or relatively easy measure, the outcome. Were they able to do the task? Yes, they did because there's a big crater, or whatever the outcome of it is, the, the, the plane landed in one piece. Brilliant, that's great. And then you can get into what was the, what was their workload like? Were they fully situationally aware? Did they think it was a good user experience? So you, our measurement technique there is comparatively simple. When you compare it to a game where you're trying to challenge, you're trying to induce a level of stress, but uh, but just enough stress to make it a challenge in order for them to accomplish something, keep them immersed in the, into a game. You're wanting to, because certainly nowadays, a lot of the bigger games are around allowing you to tell a story, allowing you to be part of a narrative, allowing you a level of interaction but really whilst you look like you've got complete freedom of action actually funneling you down a a predetermined path or one of a very small number of, of paths whilst making you think you can go and do anything you like very different challenge there to you get to the end of the game because some people think that to be if you're able to finish a game then actually the game has failed because you've not been given that level of commensurate challenge to finish. Other people, if they can't finish the game, they think they've wasted the money because they couldn't find their way through it and therefore they've blown the cash. They wanted it, they wanted to get through it all, have the challenge and see the end credits. So it, it's having that very broad level of what customer acceptance looks like or what customer delight looks like is very different from what I'm used to in, in the normal
1: design world. Um, and that's That is another fascinating aspect of this, because you have the Souls-like games, which, if you're unfamiliar, they are essentially really hard games. (laughs) Precise combat, you have to parry at just the right time, dodge at just the right time, manage your resources. If you don't, the punishment for death is very high. You get sent back with none of the resources that you gathered since your last sort of save. You have to trek all the way back to where you died to gather those resources back and hope that you can get yourself safe or finish off that monster that ended up killing you in the first place there's been a large argument or debate if you will around whether or not these types of games should include things like accessibility settings to let anybody be able to play those at lower difficulty or whatever and the sort of counter argument is that that's not part of the core game because you can't because it's hard by default why would you Mm-hmm. Reduce the difficulty. And then the other half is, yeah, but that game is not accessible to a lot of people who don't have the time or patience to play it. And then the other counter argument is but that's the designer's vision. That's that's the vision of the game is to be hard. Why should they make it easy for people? And then it's because if they want to make more money, then they would make it accessible to more people and more people would buy it and play it and they'd make more money. Sure. You go back and forth. And so this is a big debate in the space and whether or not you're on one side or the other, I think as highlighted by this list that we're looking at here and just this list. We've talked about inventory issues, but we're also talking here about accessibility settings. That's Mm -hmm. another theme that I'm noticing here. Customization, accessibility settings. You also have things like lack of contrast being a frustrating experience. There's huge, huge pushes lately for some of these accessibility settings, like such as remapping buttons to be more comfortable for you. And... Being able to engage in sort of these high contrast modes or colorblind modes that allow other users to see those types of things that, you know, for whatever reason, they can't or are easier to see for them. And that's another theme that I'm noticing here. And at what point does the gameplay go from difficult by design to accessible By design and where is that line and where should it be? And I think we can get into that with the debate a little later, but it's just another thing that I'm noticing here is as we talk about this frustration within video games, it goes beyond the UI elements here that we're seeing. It goes beyond even the video game itself. Like I said earlier, these are complex systems. You're playing on a system. In the early days of the PS5, when you had versions of games that would come out, that were both PlayStation 5 and PlayStation 4 compatible. You had users on the PlayStation downloading the PlayStation 4 version when their system could handle the PlayStation 5 version, and it would load much faster, and it would handle graphics much better, and you'd have very different experience. But they would download the PlayStation 4 version because the store wasn't easily understood. You didn't know what the differences were between the two versions. And so that's a system-wide thing. Mm -hmm. And that impacts your enjoyment of the game because you get a different experience with it. And so that's where I'm saying this is not just a contained experience within one of these apps. Because if you play a game that's cross-compatible on your phone versus on your Steam Deck versus on your PlayStation or your computer, you're going to have a different experience based on how you get to that thing. Do you access it through a launcher? Do you access it on your home screen? Do you have to put in a disc to be able to play it? All these things contribute to the end experience. And it's just fascinating to see how it all comes together. And it's amazing in a lot of ways that we can get a tube full of people flying through the air. It's amazing in the same way that all this is working from a software perspective too. If you think about even just the complexity of us talking here, I know we've geeked out about this before. I have a system on my end. You have a system on your end. We're communicating through this other thing. And that's a whole other experience factor that we haven't even touched upon yet is teamwork and communication.
3: It's What is really interesting for me in terms of this overall is it goes to what you were saying earlier of what is the intent of the design, the difficult by design or the accessibility by design, because some people have described this in some of the other literature when I was sort of reading around this a bit is that, is it software? Is it something that is meant to be achieved? Or is it art? Is it something that uh, somebody has a vision and therefore you shouldn't mess with that vision as such. They have an absolute right to, in in the same way that art is not necessarily accessible, that you have a piece of art just purely because you don't understand what it's trying to say. But part of what the value of that art is, it's in your own interpretation. It's in your, the way that you access that piece. And I think I've t- spoken about this before, where I've struggled to understand art in the past because uh, it just—it's just you know blobs on a piece of cam- canvas. As far as I'm concerned, until somebody then explained to me around, it's about the journey. And this is why I did what I did. I this is the, where I got to. This was my struggle. This was and this is how it's expressed. So that means something very different now. And somebody said that game development, particularly around the really beautiful games, are really well thought out so not just the, the simple thing on, on your phone but the, the stuff that has a, a longevity to it is not just a a piece of software it's a piece of digital art that you can interact with i thought it was an interesting take on it and not necessarily completely bought into that but i can see given you, you mentioned like different types of software engagement i remember my early days of Family a game was on a commodore 16 where you put the tape in you waited at what felt like a few days for it to bring up the table, and you got the really simplistic interface that had no style around it whatsoever. The The aircraft simulator was really basic. All the way through to compare to what you've got now, It has been such an evolution. It's, it's unreal. And again, now you see, you have mentioned already about going into VR and AR, where are we going to be with gameplay in another 10 years, in another 20 years? And I reckon that number that we said originally, around 40% of people being gamers, will be vastly higher, if not double, if not like nigh on 90 hundred percent of people will be gaming. Is is a prediction I make now, and you can come back and listen to this in 10 years' time and see whether I'm right. Yeah, we'll bookmark this episode. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Thank you to our patrons
1: and all of you for selecting our topic this week. Thank you to our friends over at UX Collective for our new story. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles and our weekly roundups and our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories and more. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back and we're going to try something new live and it'll be really interesting and see how it goes. All right, uh, with that being said, uh, we'll be right back right after this. Are you tired of boring lectures and textbooks on human factors and UX? Well, grab your headphones and get ready for a wild ride with the Human Factors Minute Podcast. Each minute is like a mini crash course packed with valuable insights and information on various organizations, conferences, usability methods, theories, models, certifications, tools, and much more. We'll take you on a journey through the fascinating world of human factors, from the ancient history to the latest trends and developments. Listen in as we explore the field and discover new ways to enhance the user experience. From the think-aloud protocol to the critical incident technique, focus groups, iterative design, we'll make sure that you're the smartest person in the room. Tune in on the 10th, the 20th, and the last day of every month for a new and interesting tidbit related to human factors. Don't miss out on the Human Factors Minute podcast, your ultimate source for all things human factors.
2: Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our monthly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and access to the full library of Human Factors Minute, a weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends.
1: Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons. We especially want to thank our Human Factors cast, All Access and VIP patrons, Michelle Tripp and Neil Ganey. Uh, Patrons like you truly keep the show up and running. We could not do this without your support. Just as a little FYI, I mentioned at the top of the show that we are gearing up for HFES this year. You also might know that we have a Human Factors cast digital media lab. And if you are interested in communicating human factors or working with us here at the podcast on various projects to help build up your portfolio. We have a lot of work in the hopper that we need to prepare for HFES with if you want to get some work experience. Get some stuff out there. Let us know. Get in contact with us. HumanFactorsCast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on any of our platforms. We'll respond to you there. But it's a great opportunity. Always like to bring it up every now and then to to let you all know that we are doing stuff beyond just podcasting. If that interests you at all, let us know. There's no... We don't have a transition for this. Should I just play the It Came From? It's not a...
3: Just do it anyway. And then... It came from... It came from... Came from the debate
1: stage. I don't even know what to call this. So just to be completely transparent with all you listening, we wanted to freshen up the format a little bit. The it came from let's be honest, we're getting a little stale sometimes. A lot of the samey questions after doing this for six, seven six years, seven years, eight years. No, six what a long time. We start to see the same questions come up and just phrased in different ways. And we wanted to try something new. We're trying this completely on the fly here. So join us on this journey as it's probably going to be embarrassing and we're probably gonna struggle through it a little bit. But the idea here is that we have a debate topic that is tangentially related to the article topic that we talked about tonight on the show. We'll each take one side of this and argue points for that perspective from a human factors standpoint. And again, this is related to the primary article. So the prompt for tonight, Barry, is should video games prioritize intuitive and minimalist design, potentially sacrificing depth, complexity, or should they embrace detailed and comprehensive design at the risk of overwhelming or ostracizing new players? Barry, you have opted for which argument?
3: I'm going to be pushing for the intuitive and minimalist design approach, so minimalist UX/UI design, and and the main reason behind this and the, what I want to push is that if we have a intuitive minimalist UX/UI design, then it has the greatest chance of success. The reason behind that is because you're going to have broad accessibility; everybody is going to be able to get in and play the game. Those people who are possibly more like me, who is more of a casual user, there is nothing worse than trying to get into a game and do you get overwhelmed straight away with lots of stuff going on. You have to learn lots of different bits, lots of you, uh, lots of the instructions on how to use it. I immediately get turned off. I don't want to play. So, if you want to get casual users into it, then you need that minimalist design so that you can get immersed into it straight away. And then, hopefully, if you've done it properly, then you will be able to play. Keep on going, playing that game. If you if it's too complex, you're just not going to start. Therefore, everybody loses. You don't you don't create the money from it, and, and nobody plays the game. Nick, so what perspective? Obviously, that's my first opening gambit on this. So, what perspective are you taking, and what's your initial thought? Sure. So, I am taking the argument that video games should be detailed and
1: comprehensive, and I'm going to steal the point that you were talking about earlier in the article discussion, that video games are art. I believe that video games are art. I believe that they are a vision, not necessarily of one person always. Sometimes in the case of indies, you do have a video game that is representative of that one person's image or or vision for the product. I think video games are a collective piece of art that represents the video game team, the design team, the development team, the art team, the story team, everybody that contributed to that singular product. And I think that in itself should be reason enough for video games to be whatever they want to be, whether that's uh, complex or intuitive. But again, I'm arguing for the complexity here. So what I'm going to say is that in this case, with a piece that is robust, that is, that has depth and complexity, you're going to capture the gamer market. We mentioned at the top that 40% of the population is a gamer. Why are we not capitalizing on that 40%? Let's get that depth in games and make that comprehensive design cater to that specific demographic. So that is my initial standpoint. <laughs> I don't know how to do this.
3: No, exactly. So if we're going to maximize broader engagement base, then two things are are important here. And I'm going to throw about two of my points points into one, really. Firstly, you've got to get people playing the game faster. You've got to get people actually from the point of either downloading it, because it could be on your phone or onto your platform. You need to be able to get them using and enjoying the game as quickly as possible. So the faster you onboard somebody, the better it is. The only way you f- you onboard people quickly is either through lots of training beforehand, which we know from complex systems. We talked about it in, in, in the main article. You, do, you put people on training courses. We don't put people on training courses for computer games. It's just not done. So therefore, the only other way to get people fast on board is to minimize the amount of interaction they need to learn in order to interact with that game. So therefore in order to get people into the game quicker and therefore enjoying it quicker you have to have an intuitive and minimalist ui it, for me it's a slam dunk i win everyone's happy the second point along with that though if you've got a minimalist ui you've then reducing the amount of cognitive load you need to actually mechanize the game which means you can then go back to and i'm going to steal my own point if this game is is art it means that if you are not having to worry about how much cognitive load you are processing on you on developing game mechanics or get game interaction, game system control, you've then got more cognitive space in order to enjoy the enjoy the experience, make the most of the gameplay itself, and more people can do that. Going back to the my original point, because that folds in, that means more people can access it. And fundamentally, therefore, you make more money.
1: Okay, let's go back to that first point about onboarding and getting people on. Not all games are intuitive, and I know you're arguing for intuitiveness, but there will still be a subset of the population who will need to go and refer to some guide to be able to play a game. By making these systems more complex and including more external research including more resources on how to play the game included in the game itself it will eliminate the need to go out look at sort of some of these external guides look at wikis forms youtube videos on how to do something and it will be better for those types of players who want all their resources in one place now to get to your second point it's art and it basically the the cognitive load aspect of it. If you make a game more complex, you're looking at supporting potentially more diverse cognitive styles. Not all players process information in the same way. If you have a detailed interface, you can cater to some of these diverse cognitive styles, or hell, I'm going to go out even on a limb here and say neurodivergent folks, and say uh, you, you can offer people multiple methods of interaction for customizing their experience to exactly how they want. So you could design the game your way, or you, the player, can specify how you want to play with this complex level of settings. Now, I'm not saying that these are not intuitive to use. It's just more complex rather than minimalist.
3: But I think what you've just explained would absolutely uh, be attractive to a small subset of hardcore gamers, people who are willing to invest time, effort, and energy into immersing themselves into learning what, how to work with that game, which is brilliant. And actually that subset of people will more than likely pay a lot more money for a single instance of a game, which is fine. However, if we want to um, be inclusive and bring in a broad range of people, then actually you having that detailed, rich onboarding experience will just put them off. The other piece around that as well is the more complex your interface, the more that we've termed richness here, um, the more options you've got within there, the bigger chance you've got of making errors. And and there's two levels of errors here that I think are really useful. There's the first level of error that you want to have in there because that's the challenge of the game. When you've got the gameplay itself, you want people to, Fall into the crevasse to get shot by the sentry. Whatever it is, as part of that gameplay, what we don't want is people choosing the wrong option, the wrong selection, as part of the game mechanic. Sorry, as the game organization, the game control, as opposed to a, just badly utilizing a game mechanic. So there is, if if you have too much complexity, if you have to really think about what you're doing, you're gonna it can either um, jar with the gameplay or it can basically force you to make errors which will just re- ruin your user experience, uh, your gameplay experience. Okay, counterpoint on the user
1: error. If you design a system that is more complex, you may be able to develop something that's adaptive in its learning style. If it determines that you have died to this thing five times, so maybe it lowers the difficulty of that, adjusting that information and the things available to a person in a complex UX system within a video game will be largely based on the player behavior. And so by making it more complex, you're actually making it easier to use
0: <laughs> in some
1: way for performance and behavior because yeah. of, you are making sure, especially with adaptive learning situations, that they're you're making sure that they're always challenged but not overwhelmed.
3: That's a stretch, isn't it?
1: All right, with that stretch. <laughs> I think we got to end it there. This was the test drive. Let hey, us well, know how I'm- you... Let us know I, how you all think of this like debate format. I think it's an interesting take. Maybe we'll source some prompts from you all in the future on some topics, but it was just I, something I, we I, want to try.
3: I think it was, I don't know about you, I thought it worked better than I, I anticipated it did. I, uh, yeah, I, me too. Yeah, I it was quite good from that. What we need is almost some sort of vote at the end of it. Who won? <laughs> yeah. But if we have a debate, somebody's got to win, clearly. Um, Anybody's okay. um, no poll,
1: but sound off in the comments. Who who won that debate? And if it's not me, that's fine. I Obviously, the true answer is somewhere in the middle. I think both Barry and I would agree there. Um, the true it depends answer, but sound off in the comments. Let us know what you think. Okay. And I think with that, it's
3: just time for one more thing. So Barry, what is your one more thing this week? So my one more thing this week is very exciting. Anybody who's been around drones and stuff like that knows, particularly in the UK, things have gotten a been getting a bit harder to fly drones because more people have them, there's invasion of privacy issues, etc. So you now, to fly almost any sort of drone, you now have to get certified one way or another so which means that you there is a effectively a a textbook or online textbook that you have to know the ins and outs of the basics of the law so how how close you can fly to people how close you can fly to buildings what you what weights you can fly etc etc what how to look after your drone all that sort of stuff i've completed i've done my learning i've completed my course i got my certificates in fact two certificates my operator certificate and my flying certificate and I've bought myself a, a little secondhand drone, and I went out flying my drone the other day, which was hugely exciting because I've had a drone before, like 10, 15 years ago, and it was very hard to fly. It was very clunky. The way of flying this thing now, and I paid probably just £120 or 100 £110 off eBay secondhand drone. What did it delight like to fly? absolutely brilliant the, the stuff that used to cause you so much hassle like taking up properly landing properly it's all just one button stuff now so th- the stuff that was difficult like really difficult and could really damage a drone it now handles automatically you can still do it yourself if you want to but you've got one button. if you get into like completely flustered or whatever and you do that then it works so i've now got my drone that's really good what that i hope will give us is my Longer standing aim here is to then bring that into the business. So we were running some trials the other week and what I, I like setting up. So if you're doing a particular thing, you set up all around cameras to record video, record stills for post post-trial analysis. What I was missing was an overhead shot for this particular thing. And I wanted something I was trying to work out if I, I could have mounted a camera up high, I could have done XYZ, but I was like, I could have just had a drone just hovering at that point. And recording, because it would sit there for 20 minutes and do that and be autonomously doing that. Could I do that? Would that be a viable thing to do? So I'm hoping this is my first step to improving my trials capability of having drone overhead shots when I run trials. I'm very excited. Amazing.
1: Hey, when you fly, do you fly FPV or do you fly just
3: like? Visual. Okay. Uh, so it's interesting because in UK law, you are... You cannot fly just FPV. If you're flying FPV, you've got to have somebody else alongside you, eyes on the drone, uh, manual eyes on the drone, so they can be watching whilst you're flying FPV. Interesting. Because when you're flying FPV, you don't get a full situational awareness of what's going on around you. So it makes sense about why we do that. Ironically, I was flying, there's a picture of me taking a picture of myself Whilst I'm look, looking down at my controller, look where the camera is. And you can clearly see that I'm not watching my drone. I had I to have somebody else doing that for me because of that thing. It was a really That's bizarre, it. bizarre, almost circular argument there. But then it was quite funny because my son was doing the watching and he's, what am I looking for? And I'm just like, there's no, nothing else around. Don't worry about it. But it was you see putting that out there. It was a weird thing. But yeah, it's fun. What about you, Nick? That's What's it. your one thing?
1: So I had like many one more things and you chose my number two which is interestingly enough applicable to our topic tonight so board games is the topic and i'm now down in my adhd rabbit hole again of i I bought a new board game and now i have bought the the sleeves for the cards and i'm going to put every single card in those sleeves and i'm like going down all these rabbit holes of like how can i enhance this and make it like this this awesome thing to play it's Star Wars villainous, and it's basically where you take the perspective of the bad guys and you try to do certain things. So, like General Grievous will collect eight lightsabers, Asajj Ventress does missions, and Vader tries to turn Luke Skywalker. Those types of things, and it's really interesting because the systems we were talking a lot about systems tonight. It's complex enough that it offers a variety of different gameplay approaches to these accomplishing these scenarios. And it's also very interesting playing this game with my wife where she's not a a board gamer, played some in the past, but the super complex board games I will probably never touch because there's too many things going on. Working against my own debate point here. But I think it's just fitting that we're talking about this because as my wife and I were trying this last night, I felt like there was just the right amount of learning for this board game where we felt accomplished after we had completed a round and it was just a test round. it was a test game for us to see how the mechanics worked and how we would interact with all these cards and what they all do and how to play the character it was just a a fascinating experience and so we're going to try again this weekend a couple times with a couple different characters now that we get the flow of the game and it's just that's very rewarding when you get To that point of not mastering a system but understanding a system so that you can attempt to start mastering and that's it that's my one more thing and that's it for today everyone if you like this episode enjoy some of the discussion about games i'll encourage you all to go listen to episode 257 we talk about do video games affect your well-being comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story and our new debate format who won that And for more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Discord community. Visit our official website. Sign up for our newsletter. Stay up to date with all the latest human factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, you can stop what you're doing right now. Leave us a five-star review on your podcast medium of choice. That always helps us out. Uh, Two, this helps us out more than those five-star reviews. uh, Tell your friends about us. We're going to be there at HFES. And if they're going to be there, let them know. and Tell them to stop by the booth. Maybe you'll hear your friends on the show. Three, consider supporting us on Patreon if you have the financial means to. I have now a board game addiction that I need to fund. Just kidding. That all goes back into the show. Just kidding like Barry, kids about his car. <laughs> As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find
3: you if they want to talk about Minecraft? If you want to come and talk to me about anything at all, including really Minecraft, then come and find me on X. Do I have to call it X? to K or any of the socials, just search for Barry Kirby, you'll find me. If you want to come and listen to people I interview, inter- in, interesting people around the human factors domain, find me at 1202 uh, Human Factors Podcast at 1202podcast.com.
1: As for me, I've been your host Nick Rome. If you want to talk about human factors, Star Wars, video games, you can find me on our Discord and all social media at Nick underscore Roman. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Till next time, it depends.
3: Yeah.
0: Welcome to the Safe and Effective Podcast, a show that dives deep into the world of medical human factors and user experience. I'm your host, Heidi Merzad. Are you passionate about making a difference in the medical field? Curious about the science behind designing usable, safe and effective medical devices? Look no further. Every episode, we bring you exclusive interviews with experts from industry, academia, and government as they share their insights and experiences in the rapidly evolving world of medical human factors. From case studies to regulatory updates, we've got you covered. Stay ahead of the curve and learn valuable lessons that make a real impact on patient quality of life and user experience. Whether you're an industry expert or a novice looking to expand your knowledge safe and effective, the Medical Human Factors podcast is for you. Join us as we explore the world of human factors and its impact on the medical device industry. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned and remember, be safe and effective.